So if you have a Bible, you can open it to Acts chapter 1 again. And we're sort of dissecting the geography of this very famous verse, but let's read it again. Acts chapter 1, verse 6, Then they gathered around Jesus, and they asked him, Lord, uh, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem and in all of Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. As he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. We've talked a little bit about the geographical realities of this verse. Uh, and so thinking that these men were clustered in Jerusalem, they were sort of huddled up, and Jesus is basically saying, hey, your witness is going to be here, but it's going to also be in Judea, which would be the, the area that Jerusalem was a part of, and then Samaria, which is the next area, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. To them, the known world was the Roman Empire, which sort of extended into Europe and into Asia and into the northern part of Africa. Little did they know that <laughs> Jesus had even bigger ambitions than all of that. And the, geog the geographical realities, of course, are important, and we see it in how the book of Acts is laid out, because the first several chapters, um, the witness goes to Jerusalem, and then we see it go to Judea, and then to Samaria, and then ultimately through Paul, and those who support him and accompany him, it goes to the ends of the earth. And so most people have made a big deal about the geography, uh, and in many ways, rightly so. Uh, it's, it's a great way to understand it, but as is the case with all things, sometimes we miss some of the other implications that are important. Uh, and that's what we want to talk about just a little bit today, specifically as we talk about what does Jesus mean when he says to the disciples that you're going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria? Uh, because Judea, as we'll see, we can deal with in about one minute. Samaria has all kinds of implications that are, are going to have, I think, very important and very germane direct impacts for us as we consider ministry here, as you consider ministry and living mission in your context. Uh, and so let's talk about that. So obviously Judea was, in essence, uh, the province uh, that Jerusalem was located in. It was the southern part of Israel. If you remember into the Old Testament, um, God changes Jacob's name to Israel, right? And Jacob has 12 sons. He's more than 12, but he has 12 that end up getting places named after them. And then, so the 12 tribes sort of section off this, this land mass that's called Israel. And ultimately, uh, somewhere down the road in, in the books of Kings, the northern, what's called the northern kingdom, or more appropriately, the 10 tribes uh, of, of um, Jacob that aren't Benjamin and Judah, <laughs> kind of section themselves off. They become a northern kingdom separate from the southern kingdom, which becomes Judah, Judea. And so when you think of Judea, just think of that southern part of Israel. Ultimately, the northern kingdom, as we'll find out in a minute, uh, goes into exile to the Assyrians. The southern kingdom ultimately goes into exile to the Babylonians. They both sort of have the same fate, but the book of Kings lets us know that the northern kingdom is, is a bit more wayward <laughs> than the southern kingdom. So Jerusalem to Judea, for them, is comfortable ground. Uh, it's the places that they know but maybe aren't living directly in. Now remember, these guys are mostly all Galileans, so actually they're northern 
kingdom people, but the epicenter of Jewish faith is what we're talking about now, uh, is Jerusalem and, and Judea. And so for them, it made all kinds of sense to do that. And so as we think about, well, what is Judea to us? And people have said, well, it's like the United States. Or some people have said it's like the regional area around us. Draw some kind of circle around where you live, and it's kind of that. And fair enough, it's something like that. For us to say this is exactly what it is is sort of to miss the point, I think. So just think about it regionally. That makes sense. But I think even more so, this, this geographical reality, I think, is, is maybe better pictured like this. Have you ever um, tried skipping a stone? Is anyone good at skipping stones? I'm horrible at skipping stones. So when I, when I try to, to skip a stone, mine just plops in the middle <laughs> and never is seen again. Other people, they like bounce like 10 times. I don't know if I'm choosing the wrong stones, if I can't throw it right, if I'm just very untalented when it comes to <laughs> that particular thing. So all I can ever picture um, as other people are skipping stones is I, I throw my stone and it hits and there's this splash. And then what happens after you splash a stone into a pond? It ripples, doesn't it? It ripples. And so what we see in the book of Acts is a massive splash in Acts chapter 2 called Pentecost. The Spirit comes and all kinds of wild things are happening. And people have interpreted that in different ways and probably they're all right in a, in a unanimous kind of way. And then the rest of the book of Acts is the ripple effects of what the Spirit has initiated. And we see that it just has global impact. And we'll talk about it next week. The part of the reality of being witnesses to the ends of the earth is that what you do here has global importance to the cause of the gospel. Because how are you to know a hundred years from now who you've impacted that has impacted someone else who's impacted another person who happens to be a missionary to Vietnam who reaches thousands of people? Uh, there's great stories about D.L. Moody uh, who goes on to reach thousands upon thousands of people through his preaching and, and church and ultimately through establishing a Bible college and publishing house and radio and all of these things, uh, no one talks about the one man who converted him on the street. These ripple effects are, I think, an even better picture of what Acts 1-8 is about rather than simply he's going to do it here and then he's going to send people here and then he's going to send people here. God's never been a compartmentalized God. He intends to reach, reach and redeem the entirety of his creation and so it's going to happen like that. So what God does in you is going to have unbelievable ripple effects. Now, tell me about the rock. Is the rock present to see all of what it has accomplished on the top of the lake? It sinks to the bottom, doesn't it? Sinks like a stone. And so it's almost this picture of a life of sacrifice that has unbelievable effects that in many ways none of us will be able in an earthly way to appreciate how God has used us. And so the gospel goes forward in that way. What you do matters regionally, not just locally. It matters globally, not just locally. But it's also important for us to sort of take the geographical claim and to understand that we have a commission, not simply to establish a church in Bethlehem, not simply to grow a church here, to reach our neighbors, to uh, share faith with our coworkers, but to find out what God is doing in the regions surrounding us and to partner with it. To see how God is already raising up outposts of his kingdom and in many ways resource or empower them to do it. 
I had a meeting this past week with two with a couple, a wonderful couple who are campus ministers um, in a in a college in Allentown. And we talked about ways that we could partner together. This is the kind of thing that I'm talking about, ways that we can find, not not invent, but find ways that God is already doing things for the sake of his name, partner with them, resource, empower them, and enable the gospel to go forward in that way. This is what it means, in essence, to be witnesses to Judea. Told you that part would be easy. Let's get to, to the dirty work. What does it mean to be witnesses in Samaria? What does it mean to be witnesses in Samaria? So, um, I don't have, I probably should have, like, put a map up there. But picture with me, if, if, if you're in, I love maps. Like, I could look at maps all afternoon long and plot how I would drive across the country, even though I'll never do it. You know, I'll, I'll take this highway, then I go through this city, and uh, I, I plan these routes that I never, ever accomplished, or I look to find where things are, even in states like, North Dakota and Wyoming that I hope to never visit. Although, <laughs> I, I did drive the length of Wyoming once, uh, and it's, as you can imagine it, hours with nothing, and then little things pop up, and buffaloes that cross the road, uh, and hundreds upon hundreds of degrees. If you're into that, visit Wyoming. It was a long day <laughs> for me. Um, but I love maps. So, even if you're not a great drawler like me, you can make a map of Palestine or Israel, as it's called now, uh, very easily. So what you do, if, if you're facing this way, is make a backwards C, and then over here draw a small circle, a line, and an oval. Got it? Half C, Mediterranean Sea, small circle, Sea of Galilee, line, Jordan River, oval, Dead Sea. Everything in between these two things is Israel. So, if you're picturing this, I'm going to do the whole sermon with my back to you. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I hope I look all right. But if you're facing this way, this map that I've just drawn, the bottom part here is Judea. Okay? Then right here above it is what's called in, in Jesus' time Samaria. And then above it here is Galilee. And then out from the side of the Jordan River, you have a, a province called Decapolis and Perea. And then, obviously, the Roman Empire extends above that. So, geographically speaking, Samaria is right above Judea. Uh, but I don't think this is a geographical reference. There's a reason that it gets tied in with Judea. If you're going to go to Judea, oh, and by the way, Samaria too, right? It's not comma Samaria, as the rest of them are. It's not Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. It's not a logical geographic thing. It's, it's Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria ends of the earth. Because if left to an Israelite or a Jewish person, as we'll find out in a minute, they would just skip it. The ends of the earth wouldn't even nearly be as offensive as going to Samaria. As a matter of fact, and we'll talk about this in a minute, I'm getting ahead of myself, they plotted courses that would take them far longer simply so they didn't have to walk through Samaria. So I ask you, what are the implications when Jesus says to them, you will be witnesses of what I have done for you in Samaria. In Samaria. Well, it means that we are going to need to bear witness to a religion and a culture that is different than ours. We're going to need to bear witness to people who we would otherwise avoid. And in fact, we're going to need to bear witness to our enemies. 
So if we can take some time and unpack those four things, I think we'll get a better idea of Jesus' command rather than simply saying it's the next concentric circle of geographical expansion of the gospel. The Samaritans uh, were part of the northern kingdom of, of Israel, and when the Assyrian conquering army came in, of course this was, was the case with conquering armies, they would take the people away with them and, and sort of enslave them or imprison them uh, or enculturate them back in the homeland. Uh, but the Samaritan people, they stayed. So they were Jewish people, the northern kingdom, who stayed. And then over time began to intermarry and, and take on sort of the, the cultural realities and religious realities of Assyrian culture, of pagan culture, as other people sort of moved into the void that was created by the other Jewish people's absence. And so uh, for, for the Samaritan people, the Old Testament consisted of the Pentateuch, right? For the first five books of the Old Testament, or the books of Moses. The prophets meant nothing to them. Uh, the, the history books meant nothing to them. The poetic books meant nothing to them. Uh, it was simply the Pentateuch. And then they, they actually worshiped at Mount Gerizim. And so Jerusalem is never really established until David is king. And so Jerusalem had no value to them course in Jewish culture Jerusalem is everything and so they're worshiping on Mount Gerizim this is why the woman at the well uh, in John chapter 4 says to Jesus well where are we supposed to worship because this is the singular question is it Jerusalem are you right or is it Mount Gerizim are we right there's this unbelievable religious difference and as, and as a matter of fact uh, they would be what uh, in modern missionary terms is called syncretistic people Syncretism or syncretistic people are people who have sort of meshed orthodox faith with non-orthodox faith. So they've taken sort of their Jewish faith and meshed it with pagan religious faith or pagan culture or Assyrian gods. And it was just a mishmash of things. And we don't see that in our world anywhere, do we? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the new religion of our world is the, the meshed religion of eight to nine to ten to twelve different things composited into one form. Different religion, syncretistic people. And so I ask you, when Jesus says to the disciples, you'll be my witnesses in Samaria, and this is their first thought, these people don't even believe the prophets. These people don't even believe David, who was the savior of, of Israel. Everyone looks to David. Now these people, they don't even, they don't have the, even have the history. They don't have the, po the poetic books. These people, they, they worship at Mount Gerizim. They don't, even, they don't even come to the holy city. They don't come to the temple. And we're to take this Jewish message of Messiah to these people? These people are syncretistic. They're, they're not committed to God. They've embraced all kinds of things that are outside of, of God. And so I ask you, as they're processing this, what does it mean for you when Jesus gives the same exact command to us? You'll be my witnesses in Samaria. In our midst, to those who are religiously different than us. For far too long, for far too 
long, the church has taken an antagonistic stance towards people of other faiths. And I need to tell you that it's absolutely blatantly wrong. The church has hope in Jesus. And hope is meant to be offered in a means of hope, not condemnation. If Jesus says to us in a message of salvation that through me there is now no condemnation, why do we offer the gospel in condemnation to people who don't even know Jesus? And yet our disposition towards people of other faiths is sneers and condemnation instead of, man, I'm hopeless. We are Muslims in our midst, and you know what it is to live in America in this day and age and to process people of Islamic faith. And Jesus says to you, what does it mean to be my witness to Samaria? And mind you that when Jesus says my witness, he's talking about the proclamation of good news. So if you're giving good news, we'll talk about this a little bit later, how can you ever give it in a mean or bad way? It's just totally antithetical to the whole reality of this deal. And, and oh, by the way, the gospel is that Jesus is Lord. Not that you're going to go to hell or heaven one day. And those are the implications of your choice as you process Jesus. But we've presented the end result rather than the actual person of hope. <laughs> what does it mean to be witnesses in Samaria? Samaria is not just a geographical reality. It's not just about us sending missionaries to Canada or Maine or whatever is the next geographical concentric circle away from us. I mean, these people work with you. They live with you. They eat at the restaurants you eat at. They shop at the stores you shop at. We live in such an unbelievably a multicultural society, which is a good thing, because now the gospel really can be global while it's local. And yet we process it in this very same way as Jews process Samaritans in their day. They are other. And Jesus simply says, you'll be my witnesses. Now, mind you, we've always said this about Jesus' command. He doesn't say, I'd like you to be my witnesses. He says, you will. And some of us can say, well, he says that, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> because we simply think that to be witnesses means to go stand on a street corner, to pass out a pamphlet, to knock on someone's door, or to have the courage to speak the gospel and word to them. But the reality is that you're bearing witness every day in everything that you do, no matter what you think you are actually doing. He says, you will be my witness to these people. So what does it mean to embody this syncretistic. What does it mean to process people who are part of Christian culture but not living in a mode of discipleship to Jesus? We process them in means of condemnation. Uh, they're not in it. They're not like me. Or do we go after them with the hope that is in Jesus, not Christian religion. It's a disposition. It is. And it's the first greatest hurdle that most people, myself included, can never get across. But the reality is it's not just different religion, it's different culture. <laughs> These people were intermarried. And so they didn't simply embrace 
a religion. It was a completely different culture, a completely different way of life, a completely different set of values. We talked about it last week. Even when you enter like-minded people, if you came over to my house, you would enter a home that is different culture than yours. Now, in many ways, it'd be easy culture because they're similar. Um, but in our world, there are people who are living according to vastly different values. And our attitude is so often to hurl condemnation at people who do not share our values. When we are not centered on Christ and realizing that, that, that they're not centered on Christ, how can we expect them to live according to values that they don't embrace the one who's asked us to live that way? I mean, this is mind-blowing to me, and yet we do it. I mean, I do it. I'm not, I'm not preaching at you in a harsh way. I'm telling you my experience. All the time, we sneer and we think, gosh, really, why, are you do, why do you do that? Why are you like that? Why are you valuing that? When Jesus says to the disciples, you'll be my witnesses in Samaria, they must have thought, as they did, those half-breeds, this is what they called them. You mean to tell me we've got to go mingle with them? And so when Jesus gives us the command, what is he asking you? What is it striking you? Because the thoughts you're processing right now, those are the ones that God wants to deal with right now. Because you will be his witnesses to Samaria. Now, when the Jews would go from Galilee to Jerusalem, as the disciples and Jesus did, uh, according to the Synoptic Gospels once, according to John's Gospel like 17 times, so who was right, we don't know. But they would... They would go out to the Jordan River and walk up the Jordan River, sometimes cross the Jordan River and walk up to Perea and then cross back in when they could get to Galilee by the Sea of Galilee, simply so they didn't have to take the shorter walk straight through Samaria. And we know in the Gospel of John, in the fourth chapter, Jesus says, we're going straight through Samaria. And the disciples go to find food, remember, and they come back appalled to find Jesus sitting at a well with a Samaritan who, oh, by the way, is a woman, who, oh, by the way, <laughs> is a woman with several husbands. So they couldn't be surprised when Jesus says, you're not going to take the long road anymore. Think about it. There are situations, there are people that we constantly avoid. And so when Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in Samaria, he says, you're not avoiding it. What does he say to you? I mean, how do you avoid it? Is it your family? They're my family. It's too, it's too close to talk about things of faith. Is it your close friends? Is it your coworkers? Well, work isn't a place where we talk about Jesus. You don't necessarily always have to talk in order to bear witness. Is it your neighbors because they live next to you and they might talk to other people? I mean, if you think about it, we constantly avoid it. Is it kinds of people, types of people, we're constantly avoiding. And yet Jesus says, no, you're going to be my witnesses to the people you're avoiding. And let me tell you something, you are bearing witness when you avoid them. That's not a witness of hope in the gospel. And then lastly, 
and maybe this cuts right to the core of it for Jesus and the disciples, and perhaps there's some application in your life. Jesus says that you'll be my witnesses to Samaria. The disciples, whether or not they verbalized it to Jesus, I can guarantee you that this is what they thought, because historical records tell us that this is what the Jews thought. They hated them. Like They didn't just kind of think they were weird. They didn't kind of just think they were different. They didn't just kind of think that they had sort of disowned God, and they, they hated them. They demeaned them, and they hated them. And probably a thought that crosses their mind when Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in Samaria is, they don't deserve it. And so I ask you, when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Samaria, for you. You have enemies. There are bullies in your life, and bullies aren't just schoolyard people who beat on the little kids. We all have bullies in our life who manipulate us or abuse us in certain ways or lord their power over us. Maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a boss at work, maybe it's a relative, a parent, a sibling. And we get in this attitude, this attitude of either bitterness or of anger or of self-righteousness. They don't deserve it. And God says, through Jesus, to the disciples, you will be my witnesses in Samaria. Are there antagonists in your life? They need it too. And in many ways, how you interact with them will bear the greatest witness to the hope of the gospel and to a life centered on Christ. But as is always the case, when Jesus says to them, you'll be my witnesses, whether in Jerusalem, whether in Judea, whether in Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth, he's speaking a message of the gospel and so we must remind ourselves, what is the gospel? I can tell you this, the gospel is not a bomb. We've had stories in the news in the last several months about bombs. <laughs> bombs cause harm. And yet, from, in many cases, the gospel is given from us all too often like a bomb, isn't it? We lob it <laughs> from here to there and hope that it has some kind of impact, and ultimately the impact is collateral damage. Or we go in and set it and retreat, right? And in all of these ways, well, sometimes our intention is wonderfully good. We've missed the heart of the gospel. And so we've really ultimately affected what we intended to accomplish, because at the heart, the gospel is relational. I mean, how could it be any other way? Think about this. The gospel is about a God who was so committed to a relationship with you that he sent his son to enter into relationship with you so that through that relationship, you could have relationship with the Father, and yet we never present the gospel relationally. I mean, how could we not present the gospel relationally? It is relational. 
And the gospel is a story, not simply a set of words. I was reminded of this uh, this week. Um, I have, I'm a huge sports fan. I'm not really a golf fan. Uh, but this major golf tournament is at this country club outside of Philadelphia, so it's like everywhere on the news and the channels are having like these special half an hour reports about golf and it rained seven and a half inches and this is going to be terrible and yada, yada, yada. So I'm driving the other day and I had sports talk radio on. There's two sports talk radios out of Philadelphia. If one's on commercial, I'm listening to the other one. This is kind of how my drives go. And they're broadcasting live coverage of golf on the radio. I was just, I couldn't believe it. I sat there astonished. I think I was stopped at a green light for minutes and people were beeping behind me. I just couldn't believe that they would really honestly broadcast golf on the radio. Now, if you love golf, you probably think that's the greatest thing that ever happened. My dad thinks that broadcasting hockey on the radio is ridiculous, but I could listen to it for hours. But do you see the point? For people who have no knowledge of God, who in essence are living lives of disinterest to God, when we're simply speaking words to them, complete disconnect, isn't it? But suddenly when you go home and click on the TV and there are faces and there are actions to these words that are happening and there are results and there are consequences, suddenly it becomes more intriguing and more interesting. And even great hockey fans would tell you that to watch it on a TV is way better than to listen to it on the radio. And if you have a high definition TV, I'd much rather watch it on your TV than the one in my house. And if you have a big screen TV that we can, you could take me to, I'd much rather watch it on that one. So when you think about the gospel, what are the, what are the implications? You miss a story. In any way that we can embody this story and act it out and dramatize it and give life to it, we suddenly have a much more compelling product. A drama that's read is only a script. It's not a drama. And the gospel is drama. It's story. And so we have to act it out, not just speak it. And we have to do it in a means by which others can participate. And the gospel is about love. The gospel is about love. It's about a God who loved us so much that he sent his son. It's about Jesus who loved us so much that he was obedient even unto death death on a cross, a cross that we deserve, not him. And so how could we present the gospel in any other means but love? I mean, what I found out is that when you actually take time to go spend it with people who might be Samaritans in your life for any of the reasons we listed above, because they're your enemies, because you usually avoid them, because they have different religions, because they have syncretistic Christian worldviews, because they live culturally different. When you actually take time to go be with them, these barriers shrink because you're forming human bonds. And what's actually being cultivated in you, whether you're willing to call it that or not, is the beginnings of love. Because that's how God made humans to interact with each other because that's how he interacts with us. And when you come to love people, it changes everything. And so maybe at the core of it, as is always the case, 
we need to be reminded of the gospel. Because the gospel is not a bomb, we cannot lob it, we cannot place it in retreat, but it is a relational story of love. That makes all the difference in the Samarias of our world. Let me pray with you. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that, that, that you would come from heaven to earth into our presence. change us. We thank you for the privilege of the commission you've given us for this world. I pray it in your name.